Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith and Andrew Perrine for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash death dying and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. I gotta tell y'all, the apocalyptic tone of daily life is starting to weigh heavily on me. I say starting, but it's been building for a while. Where I live, COVID-19 cases are skyrocketing, and hurricane season is right around the corner. I can't see the future, but whatever happens in the next few months is sure to be not good, to put it simply. It's all got me in a pretty sour mood. I'm usually a pessimist, if you haven't been able to tell from the 45 episodes of this show. But it's hard to see even the smallest shards of hope in this unending sea of darkness. Anyway, hope you enjoy this month's episode. This month on Death, Dying, and Other Things, the first part of a story of a man on a journey for an answer. In The Ghosts of the World, Part 1, A Man Sets Out for a Mountain. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. Deep in the clear pine forest, at the foot of Harscale Mountain, where the gray rocky bulk of the mountain's fury rises defiant above the waving green sea, a legend has been born out of cold wind and whistling branches. They say if you go there and camp for three nights, and then on the morning of the third day ask a simple question, you'll hear the answer in the leaves that night. 
Of course, who could believe such a thing anymore? After we killed ourselves through our own arrogance and stupidity, after we spent generations rebuilding what little we could on the ruins of our failed civilization, who could believe such a fairy tale? Who could believe in such a mythical power? Who could believe? The closest village is a full day's ride from even the edge of Clear Pine Forest. You'll need a horse, too, something that can ride the rough country terrain. None of that salvage. That won't work. Salvage would likely break down as soon as you turn off the old paved roads. Though the shelter would be nice. Through most of the year, unless you're outfitted with furs and leathers and salvaged synthetics, you'll freeze to death in the night. And that's if you aren't eaten by the ghosts first. I had a question I needed answering, though. It ate away at what little sanity I had left after my wife. After my wife was freed of this curse. She had some sort of cancer and suffered greatly. And I broke under the knowledge that in only my grandfather's time, we had the technology to fight it. Since then, I felt this question rip through my head, chew through my brain matter like a hollow point bullet. I can feel it, even now, slicing through neurons, making Swiss cheese of my sense of self. And I fear, if I let this go on much longer, I'll lose myself to the growing void in my soul. I remember, in my childhood, my grandfather telling me fantastical stories of what he had in his life in the times before, and getting so angry. Angry that none of it existed anymore. And, as a child, I just couldn't understand why. Greed my grandfather would say. Greed and stupidity. The question wormed its way through my head one night, late in the summer, munching through my gray matter like a caterpillar bulking up for its metamorphosis. I listened to my elderly neighbors through the thin walls reminiscing about when their children were young, and then crying about both of them being freed from this curse by way of a horrible salvage accident near a decade ago. I knew their children, of course. Our community was small, and there were not many children around to befriend, and their father, who was a teacher in the times before, became the community's teacher in the aftermath. I sat up in bed. My mind was now sent down a spiral of thought that would end at my wife, and I would not sleep soon. 
My room was one of the smaller ones in the community. I had given my much larger room to a growing family several months ago, the room that my wife and I had planned to fill with our own family. This room that I now lived in was 8 by 11, solidly constructed out of raw wood. The community ran a generator for power, and I had a small heater to stay warm through the cold nights and a light to read by. I had my grandfather's old books, one of the only things he brought with him during the great exodus from the city, and had read the lot of them several times over. I looked down at the pack, made of canvas and heavily frayed, at the foot of my bed. It had been there since I moved into that room, halfway packed for a trip I wasn't sure I would take. I studied the map I had hung on the wall, penciled over with the route I had thought many times through, up the old highway to the northwest for three days, through Carryville, and then half a day outside Carryville I'd turn north, over the rolling hills to the edge of the clear pine forest. I'd have to head straight north through Clear Pine until I reached Deer Creek, which I'd follow northwest for several days, straight to the foot of Harscale Mountain, where my question would be answered. My plan was never to set out in the dead of night. I wanted to say goodbye to my friends here, but something came over me. I shoved my pack full of the rest of my gear, cold weather clothes and food and a few books and a single box of shotgun shells, tied a sleeping bag to the bottom, slung my father's shotgun across my shoulders, and slipped out of a room I might never see again. I had given away our family's horses to the community in the months leading up to this moment. As the last surviving member of my family, they didn't need all of them. One would do. My favorite horse, a chestnut brown quarter horse named June. My wife's horse. I woke her, gently, in her stable, and after outfitting her, led her out into the community square. It must have been nearing 3 a.m. by this point, and I anticipated no trouble slipping out of our community's gate. The guard on their perch would be asleep, but I should have known Mary would be at her usual spot. Where are you off to? She said from her window on the second floor of building three. I jumped, surprised, dropped my pack, and felt a nervous sweat start up. I looked up at her. Leaving, I said. Coming back, she asked. I wanted to say yes, 
wanted to say definitively that I would go, ask my question, be satisfied with the answer, and come back before the month was out. But I knew that travelers never came back. Careful, she said. Ghosts on the horizon. I can see them beyond the walls. I nodded, picked up my pack, shoved my shotgun into June's saddle, and led her to the gate. Nice knowing you, Mary said, just as I parted the gate. I waved to her and disappeared into the night. June kept a good pace. As the sun rose and the sky lit with greens and purples, I slipped off the road about a hundred feet, stuck to the high grass for most of the first morning, and by noon came to the Hardy River overpass, where the highway passed over one of the widest sections of the Hardy River. I led June down to the bank of the river and built a small fire. I stripped off the outer layer of my clothes. The air temperature was warming slightly, but I didn't dare take off more than that. Out here, beyond the safety of the community, the environment can deceive you. It can make you think you're burning up trick you into stripping off your furs and salvaged cold weather clothes while you freeze solid. And that's not even the worst of the tricks the scarred earth will play on you. I warmed some stew I had brought in a jar on the small fire and ate slowly, allowing the hot food to warm me from within, and gazed across the river to my root on the other side. I'd have to return to the highway behind me and continue on across the overpass. My eyes traced my future pathway across the raised concrete structure and for a brief moment saw a face peeking over the overpass's barrier, looking down at me. I shoveled the rest of the stew down my throat put out my fire, and rode June up to the overpass, where I discovered no one a face might belong to. Riding through the empty wilderness of the broken world was sobering. You must constantly remind yourself of the cold, or the world makes you forget. You must constantly be on the lookout, or the scarred earth sends ghosts after you. And then, you must constantly second-guess the things you see, for they may be ghosts coming to do you harm, or they may be traps the world has laid to snare you. The first afternoon, one of three before I arrived in Carryville, was uneventful. June bore me up the highway, and my mind soon drifted to that question I couldn't wait any more to ask. Turned each word over in my head. What is the point 
of all this misery. I thought long about the damage that question had done to my mind. It had eaten out large valleys and canyons in my psyche and filled them with the darkness of an answer I hoped the mountain would not give. That there was no point. That we were all suffering needlessly through an at once uncaring and now openly malevolent world. That the damage we did to ourselves and to our planet was inevitable and that the earth welcomed it. That the world, the universe even, cared less for my life than even I did. I pulled June off the highway about a hundred yards as the afternoon grew on into evening and the sun sank low in the sky. I set out my sleeping bag and tied June to a small tree, then built a fire that would keep us both warm. As evening grew into night, and the temperatures plummeted, I wished I could pitch a tent. Something to trap the heat from the fire. But if you didn't keep an eye on it, the earth out here outside the communities, had a knack for moving around on you, making you lost despite your best efforts. I wasn't that hungry, but knew I had better keep myself fed if I was going to last over the next week of travel. So I ate and fed June and then laid down to sleep. I woke some time after midnight to June stomping the ground. She had pulled her tie around the tree several times, and now her head was held tight to the bark. I clicked my tongue against the roof of my mouth a few times and whispered, Calm, girl, calm, as I pulled myself out of my sleeping bag. I put more wood on the fire. Enough, I wagered, to carry it just to morning, and then began walking toward June to get her untied from the tree and saw what was spooking her. A hundred feet away, back toward the highway, was a tall, angular figure, glowing wispy green. It moved with purpose, circling my camp and driving June around her tree. I patted her head, tried to calm her, and attempted to untangle her tie. I was worried, if she kept at it, that she was going to hurt herself. I grabbed my father's shotgun from near my sleeping bag and stepped forward toward the glowing figure. I had heard stories of the ghosts of the world, how they stalked travelers, how they were the reason no one who left their community ever made it back. I leveled the gun at the figure and watched it circle June and I further. Its long, powerful arms led its stout body and short legs 
as it plodded along on all fours. It never crept closer, though, staying a hundred feet from my camp, content to menace June and I. I considered firing at it, hoping to scare it off, but something deep in my mind told me that was dangerous. I dropped the gun to my side, suddenly frozen in slight terror. I didn't recognize the voice in my head. My inner monologue was suddenly replaced by a deep, rambling baritone, telling me over and over that it was no use. My own voice, deep in my mind, tried to rise above the babble, but was overwhelmed. The interloping baritone soon moved from repeating, it doesn't matter, to other thoughts I commonly held. It repeated my desperate question to me, what is the point of all this misery? It narrated my most cherished memory of my wife and I, just months before she got sick, deciding late one night while drinking together that we'd try for a baby. And then I realized I had not been paying attention to my surroundings. I raised my gun again, scanned the horizon, and found the glowing figure had disappeared. My inner monologue returned to normal, and I took a long, ragged breath to calm my nerves. I had never been outside the walls of my community before. Most people hadn't, and those that strayed too far from the walls never came back. We were sustenance farmers mostly, growing enough food to feed the community and no more. There was nothing to do with excess food except let it spoil, and rot on that scale could be disastrous for the community. I never saw it firsthand, but my grandmother, while I watched her preserve some of the berries we had picked in preparation for winter, told me about one of the first mistakes they ever made after the exodus. It was several years after the formation of that small community I would later call my own. They hadn't yet realized how fully the world had turned on them. What they had realized was that a growing population needed a great deal of food to be sustained, and they were still burdened with the imagined responsibility of repopulating the earth. They planted far too much wheat one winter. In the spring, when the wheat was harvested and some was milled into flour and the rest was shoved into sacks for other uses, they didn't see the boulder rolling downhill. They ate well that year, Grandma said. Grew a little fat, even. But as the summer drifted by and their wheat stores hardly depleted, the rot took hold. 
It was subtle at first, minds drifting at inopportune times, causing accidents that claimed the lives of several of my grandparents' friends. But then it became more insidious. People seizing, convulsing at the table, or later in the square while everyone had drinks. They didn't understand what was causing it until one day, someone grabbed a bag of wheat from storage to be milled into flour. It broke open, spilling the grain and a powdery black mold everywhere. The mold kicked up like dust, and the unfortunate soul breathed it in. My grandfather was the one that found him later, cemented to the floor by a massive mold colony. They never grew more food than they'd need again after that, and they stopped growing wheat entirely, sticking to root vegetables, goat milk, and fruits and berries for treats. Outside of the walls now, on my second day, I realized how ill-equipped I was. If I ran out of food, I wasn't sure I could forage. I had packed enough potatoes and jam to last me until I got to Carryville, where I'd barter for some food with the books I had brought. If something happened to my food before then, it'd be a hungry trip. I also didn't know much about surviving in the wilderness. My grandfather was an outdoorsman before the exodus, and he would occasionally describe to me what he'd do when camping. But now that I was out here, I was really just improvising. I knew how to build a fire, which seemed to help keep the ghosts at bay. I didn't know how long that would last, though. I didn't know how to hunt. And if it got too cold, I couldn't use a shelter out here, even if I knew how to build one. I scanned my surroundings. The breeze from the north was cold and pushed the grasses of the plains, making waves from the highway to the forest in the north. I briefly considered turning off the road here and heading straight for Clear Pine Forest, but on cue... I heard shouts and screams from within the tall grass nearby, and spurred June up to a run. The second night was colder than the first. I had a feeling each night would be colder than the last, especially as I started to move north into the forest and up into the foothills of the mountains. By then, it would be below freezing every night and a fire might not be enough to keep me warm. I built a big fire and toasted some potatoes and ate. I laid back, letting the heat from the flames sink into my bones while I looked at the sky. The stars, my grandmother would tell me, were the one thing that were the same as before and looking up at them with her made me feel connected to those times. Looking up at them now made me feel connected to her as well. 
Off in the distance, I heard screams. Animal screams, maybe. I sat up and grabbed the shotgun. Listening close, I didn't hear any more screams. I didn't hear any more shouts. All I heard were the rustling grasses swaying in the breeze. Suddenly, there was a figure in the bright campfire light. It wasn't a ghost, but it was just as terrible. Hunched low, it dragged its body forward with claws attached to lanky arms and bared its sharp teeth to growl at me. I heard another growl from nearby, raised my shotgun to the one I could see, and fired. The creature shrieked. The percussive shot echoed through the valley, and I saw ghosts spring up through the field and turn towards me. I grabbed my pack, jumped on June, and bolted. I rode through the night, occasionally glancing back at the highway behind me to see several ghosts following at a distance. I would not stop riding until I reached Carryville. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, The Ghosts of the World, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to the everyday struggle of being. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other shows, they're great. New episodes the second Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Shadows.